most of those questions, um, they don't often come as, you know, how should I obey the scripture? They, they often come as more distant uh, third person questions. As Christians, we really love to ask hypothetical scenarios. We really love to post questions on Facebook so we can argue publicly about what we believe the Bible says about certain things. And uh, I've had people ask a lot of questions. You know, we usually frame them in the third person. Can Christians drink alcohol, or, or can Christians get divorced, or, or sometimes when we really we have an opinion and we don't really want to say our opinion, but we still want to ask a question, we'll we'll ask it in the phrase of Can you do X Y Z and and still go to heaven? Can you be homosexual and still go to heaven? Can you can you be remarried after divorce and still go to heaven, or or can this person really go to heaven, or or if you have an abortion, will you go to hell? And we, we ask questions in this way. And then this other thing happens that after we ask our very nondescript third person question, if we don't like the answer, then, then the hypothetical scenario comes in, right? I'm sure you've had a friend that, you know, it's like, well, what if, okay, just say it, what if there was like this tribe of cannibals in the Amazon and they found a gospel track that fell out of an airplane accidentally from, from Jim Elliott? And they couldn't read most of it, but they could read uh, the prayer for salvation. And they read it out loud as a volcano erupted and they all died. Would that person go to heaven? And we like to frame our questions about obedience in that way sometimes because it's difficult sometimes uh, for us to, to just submit to what the Word of God says in it for our lives. When people ask me these questions, I have to remember that it's more important that I address the person than it is for me to address the question. So when you find yourself being asked kind of ridiculous hypothetical questions, you probably should not immediately address the question, but address the person. So, so are you a member of a cannibalistic tribe in the Amazon? Do you have a friend or relative who might be? You know, did you happen to find a random gospel track and read the scripture or read the prayer out loud? And is that what you think salvation is? Okay, no. Let's talk about what's really going on and what your your question really is, because often when we're struggling with what does obedience look like, it's very difficult for us sometimes to ask very direct questions. It's sometimes very difficult for us to come to another person and say, this is the decision I face in my life, and I'm not really sure about what the scripture says about obedience in this situation. Could you help me discern the will of God in this situation, how I can obey the scripture? Now, I will say this is a disclaimer. I'm, I'm not meaning to say that any of these questions are trivial, and I'm not saying that any of these questions um, should be taken lightly. In fact, I think we should have uh, meaningful discourse about all of them, but I think oftentimes what we do as Christians is we like to muddy the water with our intellectual debate about things that oftentimes are not really muddy in Scripture. We like to kind of beat around the bush and have this intellectual discussion, and I think sometimes we do that um, to make us feel less guilty or to in hopes that we might justify some of our own thoughts or ideas. And so we, we engage in these discussions that are hypothetical in nature. And yes, I do love to engage in those discussions. And if you uh, try to engage me, I will probably give in and I'll have that discussion with you. But I think oftentimes when we do this, we miss the point. We find ourselves in the midst of a theoretical argument that misses the point of a relationship with Jesus. 
I don't believe that Jesus died so that we could have theoretical arguments about what obedience means. I don't believe that Jesus died so that we could ask really complicated hypothetical questions about who goes to heaven and who doesn't go to heaven. I think Jesus died because he loves us and wants a relationship with us. And I think sometimes in our desire to be obedient or to coerce others into what we think obedience looks like, we, we kind of go this roundabout route. So tonight, um, before we read our scripture, um, I need to give you guys a brief history lesson. All right? And listen, we're going to make a deal. I'm going to give you a history lesson. You guys are not going to fall asleep. Deal? Okay. So... During the first century, during the time that Jesus lived, the time that our text comes from, there was a lot going on in the world. Particularly in the area of Palestine or, or Israel, there were some, some really key things that had happened and were developing that we need to understand to understand some things that Jesus tells us. What we need to know is that at this time, Palestine was occupied and had been occupied by Greco-Roman Conquerors. So it was first conquered by Alexander the Great, and then uh, the Roman Empire gave rise, and there was this Greek or Hellenistic rule that had been imposed on the Jewish people for many, many years leading up to the life of Jesus. And during this time, the religious and political landscape were shaped by this occupation of foreigners, by this occupation of the pagan Romans and their, their Greek culture and mythology and all of the things that went with that. And so during this time frame, um, if you wanted to gain power or be a leader or ruler and you were a Jewish person, the only way you could gain that power was to sell out to the occupying army. And if you would sell out, then you would be given responsibility because the Romans and, and the Greeks before them had learned that when you occupy a group of people— you can't just break their will and impose your own culture directly. You need someone who understands their culture and their ways, and they'll be more likely to follow along. And so, in this case, Rome chose a man named Herod. And Herod the Great was the first in a line of three different men named Herod, all of the same family, to rule or be the governor of this area of Palestine where Jesus would live and minister. And so, uh, Herod uh, Antipas was... The, the Herod who was in charge that you read about in the Bible. And so he had, had come into power um, probably maybe uh, a few years before Jesus' birth. And so during this time, there were Jews who wanted the favor of their oppressors. It's the best way I know how to put it. Some of them would sell out and become tax collectors. Some of them would sell it in other ways. But what happened is there became this political party, and it was— it was a political party, but it was also a religious sect. And if you, to understand the climate, you, you couldn't be political without also being religious. In some ways, it's similar to our, our modern-day U.S., but it's also very different in that the two were very much more connected. So there was a group of people called the Herodians. And Herodians enjoyed the lavish lifestyle of Hellenistic culture. They enjoyed what came with Roman occupation. They enjoyed the good things that servitude to the Roman government brought them. And so they supported uh, the Herodian dynasty and its leadership over this area. And so what they did is they began to bend or twist the Jewish teachings and ideas to fit this idea. Now, as you might assume, 
the Herodians, um, because the invaders were pagan in their eyes, the Herodians had much more lax moral standards and became much more lax in, in issues of following Mosaic law. They also did away with the expectation of a Messiah. They no longer wanted to be rescued like most Jews did. They said, this is it. We're going to find favor with our oppressors and this guy, Herod, who's made a deal with them. He's going to lead us to the good life now. So you have this group called the Herodians. On the other side, you have these Jews who absolutely hate being occupied by these Greek-speaking Romans. And they were waiting for the Messiah to come and free them from this occupation. They were waiting for the Messiah to come and liberate them, and they were looking for a liberator. And the Pharisees and, and Sadducees, this is not part of our story, but just a bonus point, uh, different Pharisees believed in supernatural and miracles and the resurrection of the dead, and the Sadducees uh, did not believe in those things. But they were, they were both the opponents politically and religiously of the Herodians because they were much more strict, and they believed in a much more strict observance to the point that they made their understanding of what it meant to obey God's law so heavy and so tedious that no one could ever keep it. And it was almost like they were pushing back. And so we have this three-party system of political religious life, and they are all using their opinion about what it means to obey God and what God expects of us to gain their own favor, to gain their own influence, and hopefully to gain a following. And so it is into this environment that Jesus is born. It is in this environment that Jesus gives his teachings. And I know sometimes we, we talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, and we, we certainly read and believe the story from Scripture. But I think often what we don't understand is how politically volatile this environment was and how much Jesus just threw gasoline on the fire. There was a reason that people wanted Jesus dead. It was because he engaged and put himself in the middle of this conflict with some of the teachings, some of the things that he said. So, in this time frame, there was a practice commonly known as binding and loosing. And to bind something means to say this is forbidden, it's off limits. And so, the Pharisees would forbid, like, everything. And so, the list of things that were bound by the Pharisees was, like, a mile long. Like, you could only walk a few miles on the Sabbath day, and if you took one step over that, then you should be stoned. And they're... they're their, their list of things that were off limits was really, really long. And then there was the things that were loose, meaning these are things that were accepted. And so you could imagine the Hellenists, they had a large list of things that were like, oh, this is okay. You want to eat meat sacrificed to idols? You want to play fast and loose with what does it mean to honor the Sabbath day? But each rabbi or each teacher would have their own set of principles or ideas of what was off limits or what was okay. And they would bind and loose these things, and they would teach their followers to follow their teachings. And this collective set of teachings were known in a colloquial term as their yoke. And the term yoke is a metaphor on like an oxen's yoke. And so the, the idea is saying, how much work do you have to do to satisfy the teacher? How much work is required to satisfy God, if you will? The other phrase was used was a burden, and it wasn't like a like a burden, like a beast of burden, but it was meant to be like the burden necessary to tip the scales to make them even. And so it's this, this metaphorical picture of a scale that you had to bring enough good things or good deeds to tip the scale in God's favor to make it break even. And so this is, this is a common understanding that everyone in, in, in that day would have had. 
And so we see Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. He makes this statement that, that probably made the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians angry. He tells his disciples, he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now he's speaking this directly as a result of dealing with sin issues within the church. But what Jesus is doing, he's saying, actually, it's not the Herodians that have this authority, and it's not the Sadducees, and it's not the Pharisees, but he's saying, I am giving you the authority to bind and to loose. And so, for those who had aligned themselves with a particular religious sect, they would have seen this as an insult. They would have seen this as treason against them. In Matthew 11, verse 29 and 30, it's a common verse that most of you have heard a hundred times. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus many, many times rails against the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they had taken God's word and they had added to it all of their extra burdens and laws and expectations to the point the people couldn't bear it. And Jesus was furious at what they had done. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm bringing to you a new teaching. I'm not with the Herodians, and I'm not with the Pharisees and Sadducees, but I'm telling you a new way to live your life. I'm telling you a new way to obey God's law. You know, I'm sure most of you have attended a couple different churches, or you've at least known people from a couple different churches. Sometimes it's kind of fascinating that people who read the same Bible and who follow the same Jesus can come up with such different ideas of what obedience looks like, such different expectations of how we should apply certain scriptures to our life and what we ought to do. And sometimes we get in such heated debates that even brothers and sisters in Christ become angry with one another over our opinions of what it means to follow a certain scripture passage or obey a certain rule. But Jesus is saying, my intention is not to make this heavy. My intention is not to make this difficult for you. My intention is to make obedience simple. My intention is to make obedience easy. As I said earlier, real relationship with Jesus will always lead to obedience. So the question is, what is obedience? What does it mean to be obedient? Now, have a slide we're going to put up. It's a screenshot from my New City Catechism app. Now, your small group leaders have probably told you about the New City Catechism app, and if they haven't, now is a great opportunity for you to pull out your phone and download this app. And I, I use this because question number seven in the New City Catechism app is, what does the law of God require? And you tap the button that says show answer, and it says that we love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and all of our mind and strength. And love our neighbor as ourselves. It's so simple that my seven-year-old has memorized this. And she pulls out my phone and she opens the app and she reads it and she answers the question. That Jesus' expectations for obedience, they're so simple that even my seven-year-old can understand it. Jesus, in Matthew 22, verse 37, he says what Tim Keller put in his app. And it says, and Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You know, for ages, the Christian church is engaged in binding and loosing. People have argued and debate over what is the right way to do things. People like Martin Luther and Calvin, people like John Wesley or back to Augustine, all of these spiritual giants have weighed in on what does it mean for us as Christians to obey God's commands. And, and to be sure, we need these discussions. And I, I, for one, love having these conversations. I love to read the thoughts of Calvin and of Augustine and of Wesley. I love to hear what worked and what didn't work and why people thought a certain way. And I don't think we should divorce ourselves from the wisdom that does come from the great teachers in the church. But I feel like oftentimes we use these discussions and these debates as a mask. That we do it to avoid the simple question. Not a hypothetical question that is, what if, not even uh, if my friend, or if a Christian, but the question is, Jesus What do you expect of me? Jesus, what does obedience look like for me at this very moment in my life? And when I take my next step, what does it look like for me to be in obedience to you and to your word? I think sometimes it's really easy for us to muddy the waters. But Jesus wants to make it very, very clear for us. Real relationship with Jesus always leads to obedience. If I love God, and I love him with all of my heart, I will want to keep his commands. And if I love God with all of my heart, I will love the people that he loves. And if I follow this law of love, then the Lord will keep me in his path. I think sometimes we really stress ourselves out about what it means to know the will of God. I think sometimes we beat ourselves up and we're worried, like, what if I get it wrong? And, and like, what if, what, if, what, if, what if I mess up? And what if I have misunderstood this scripture? I think what we have to realize is that really what, what God wants is God wants us to love us with all of his heart, love him with all of our heart. And he realized that we're going to mess up. But if we're open to loving him and if we're open to loving others I think we will hear his voice I think he will lead us you know throughout this series we have talked about what it means to have real relationship with Jesus and we've we've talked about these things that real relationship with Jesus leads to effective prayer it leads to hearing his voice it leads to worship it leads to obedience and in this series our our, really, our focus has not been to teach you how to pray or to teach you how to hear God's voice or to teach you how to be obedient or to teach you how to worship. But that these things are a litmus test for our relationship with God. That if I am truly walking in relationship with God, obedience will be the default. If I'm truly walking in relationship with Jesus, that worship will be my heart's desire. That if I'm truly walking in relationship with Jesus, that I will hear his voice and he will hear my prayers.